You're listening to Self-Evident, and this is James Boo filling in for Kathy Airway on the second episode in our three-part series for Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. In our previous episode, which was titled, How Do We Go Beyond Representation?, all of our guests were questioning the premise of representation as a goal. I'm very sympathetic to the feeling that we're hearing the same story, trying to teach the country the same lessons over and over again about the model minority stereotype and how Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders are not monolithic groups. But at the same time, one thing I've learned while making this show is to respect where people are at. And to be clear, I'm talking about Asian Americans, uh, not the whites. I've had to recognize that it's not the same story over and over again for someone who's living it for the first time or who's talking about their experiences openly for the first time. Because it's difficult, right? It, it's extremely difficult if you've been denied the tools to process your own experiences. So if we feel trapped in a cycle of rehashing the same talking points over and over again, I think it actually does help to track down the origin of that cycle. So today I invited a couple folks who know a lot about this process. My name is Randy Kim. I go by he, him, his pronoun. I'm a queer Southeast Asian, mixed Vietnamese and Khmer American. Uh, I've been born and raised in the Chicagoland area, and I'm the host and creator of the Bun Me Chronicles podcast since October 2019. I am also a board member for the National Cambodian Heritage Museum in Chicago, and I'm currently pursuing my master's degree in nonprofit management at DePaul University. Hi, I'm Tracy Nguyen Meng, and I go by she and her. And I'm the founder and the host of the Vietnamese Boat People podcast. I was born in Nha Trang, Vietnam, which is a beach coastal city. And my family and I fled Vietnam by boat when I was three years old. I pretty much grew up in the United States on the East Coast. And a couple years ago, as I was trying to document my own family's diaspora story, I discovered that there were others going through a similar journey. And so I started the podcast as a way to share my own story, which is season one, and then as a nonprofit to then help other families and individuals capture their stories. We are doing the series, you know, nominally because it's Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And when I say that it's that time of year, what's the first thought that comes to mind? It's It feels like it's a burden sometimes when we have to excavate and try to bring up people who are not named Bruce Lee or Jackie Chan, but to bring up names like Grace Lee Boggs or Yuri Kujiyama or other Asian American artists and activists and educators and, and leaders who have been doing the work but often are not ever discussed as part of our history. While at the same time, it's also an opportunity to celebrate, to reflect and to honor our ancestors, to honor the people who have been creating our history and setting the blueprint for us to take actions. You know, honestly, I don't even remember growing up ever celebrating this month. And if we did, I felt like they brushed on perhaps just topics about our culture, maybe our food, the types of um, cultural dances we have, holidays, whatever it might be, our dress attire. Mm, I also echo that same thought as Tracy here because I wasn't taught Asian American or Asian Pacific Islander month at any point until 
I was close into my 30s when I got involved with Asian American queer trans movements. Uh, I learned about the Chinese Exclusion Act. I learned about Vincent Chin. I learned about Grace Lee Boggs through my organizer friends. I wasn't learning that in K-12 or in college. We all have this lack of memory of not receiving any kind of education. And part of that is because actually it didn't exist. Mm -hmm. The formality, right, of having kind of a government commemorated honoring of Asian identity and experience it began in the late 70s more as like a week than it was part of a congressional resolution. And I don't really think there was an official month until the early 90s. That makes sense now that you're giving us a history of when this all started. Because yeah, I don't remember it at all. I always say to folks, if we're having this conversation, that I grew up in a 40% Asian town. Most of the kids around me were second generation, just like me from various different backgrounds. There was zero Asian American education. Like a lot of these resources and consciousness were definitely not there. And it was a culturally white town. This was the 80s. I grew up next to Ronald Reagan Park. Everyone is trying to be the best American they can be. And even if that included a real baseline of people just being very matter of fact about like, oh, they're Korean, nothing wrong with that. It doesn't reduce the experience of trying to achieve and trying to assimilate and having unspoken rules uh, about how you manage race. But both of you grew up in completely different circumstances, I think, than I did. So I'm curious to know how you see the world differently. So Northern Virginia, where I did most of my growing up, actually has a very large Vietnamese population. What happened for me was I ended up being in a part of town in the public school system where it was divided. And so here I was in high school, probably one of five Asian kids, maybe one of two Vietnamese kids. And then 10 minutes from me was Eden Center, which is, you know, Vietnamese restaurants, Vietnamese population. So I had the best of both worlds. But did that mean that I was more confident or did that mean that I was sure of my identity? It absolutely didn't. Even being surrounded by the community in both ways, it kind of made me even more confused, to be honest. If I have to look back into my childhood, it was very difficult knowing that the first time I was told that I was Vietnamese and Cambodian was actually my second grade teacher bringing that up. She announced it to the class. Like, hey, you know, Randy is Vietnamese and Cambodian. And I'm like, really? Wait, Randy? Oh, I thought it was American. How did your parents not tell you? You know, I've never asked them that. However, both of my parents came into the U.S. only a few years before I was born. And there was so much trauma. My dad escaped from the genocide, and my mom came into the United States with a family by boat. I think my family, my parents especially, were in survival mode. And my parents were trying to find a way to make a good living for my brothers and I. And I guess that they never saw it as a priority to really help me understand that. Because that was part of... The recipe for academic success is having to learn English, having to sacrifice part of your culture as a way to be seen as successful. And it became consequential when I couldn't speak my parents' native tongue. It became consequential when I did not have a community of Vietnamese and Khmer folks to talk to. And if there were family friends, it would always be this comparison of who's doing better than who. 
And that never felt safe for me. In fact, I felt like the sense of resentment of my own identities and also throwing the queerness on top of it. So there was a lot of intersectionalities that I was really struggling with that it took me a, a lifetime to come together and realize that this is a narrative that I have to reclaim for myself and for my own survival and for my hopes to thrive. In our previous episode, one of the guests raised an interesting distinction, which is that we often trace racialized harm in the way we think about ourselves back to childhood. And with pushes for media representation as adults, we're trying to address something that happened to us when we were young, something that we lacked when we were young. Definitely everything that I feel like I've done in the last few years with the Vietnamese Boat People podcast has stemmed from things that I have either experienced as a child or basically shut off as a child. Being a refugee, being from an immigrant family, being of a very low social and economic class. I mean, I grew up in subsidized housing. So that in itself, I think, is heavy for a child. And there are so many other resources we can think of, mental health resources, family care, the ways that we're taught to just communicate with each other, the way that classrooms are run, that don't have anything to do with the media and are still greatly deficient. So in the early 80s, when we first came to the U.S. and we were in New Orleans, English as a second language, ESL, did not exist in schools. So back to your point, James, like being pushed in school and not being taught English, being kind of just surrounded by other kids and learning as you go and watching TV so that you could speak the language was how I grew up and how my siblings grew up. I've told this story a couple of times on some of my events, but, you know, I was born and let me just tell you, like a lot of us, there were jokes nonstop about my name. And I got free lunch. Even the lunch lady couldn't even pronounce my name. <laughs> and by the time I was like six years old, my sister came home one day and was like, we're going to rename you Tracy. And I became Tracy at that point for my entire life. You know, being in a classroom or being in an environment where people can't pronounce your name or not even taking the time to learn to pronounce your name makes you feel like invalidated, makes you feel like you have to adjust, you have to assimilate, you have to change who you are or where you came from in order for other people to accept you. So you are very right that it doesn't depend on the media for representation. It actually depends on the community that you live in or systematic structures like a school system to, you know, make space for that and to educate their own teachers that this is important for a child's upbringing. Thank you for bringing up your history of your name, because for myself, my parents chose not to give me a Vietnamese or Khmer name. My name is Randy Kim. Now, people always ask me, how is your last name Kim? It's a Korean last name. When my father came to the United States, I think he was sponsored to a Catholic agency. And I think they gave him the last name because, you know, he didn't have his papers. And in fact, I learned much later, like a few years ago, that my dad was going to call me Radi, which was spelled R-A-D-Y. And I'm thinking, well, why can you name me that? And my mom said it was because he was afraid that people were going to make fun of me. And in some ways... It spared me the torment that I was already getting from a lot of my classmates for a very long period of time. And at the same time, it created this sense of this loss 
of I don't have a Vietnamese, I don't have a Khmer name, I don't even have a nickname for that. And so I often have to keep reminding myself of knowing that, yes, my history is very complicated, but I don't need to be in forever grieving of that name. I really appreciate just how open you're both being and sharing these deeply rooted experiences. You know, the way I feel about this is with media representation in particular as a point of discussion and a place to invest our hopes, to invest our pain or to invest our actions. I, I shy away from anything that tries to heavily weight the value of what you consume. Hmm. When I think of representation matters, especially as an adult, sometimes that hashtag really gets under my skin um, more than anything <laughs> else. Uh, it, it really, well, I, I'm being very nice. It, it really gets on my nerves all the time. <laughs> I say this because I was growing up wanting to be a journalist. And I remember covering the Southeast Asia Symposium at College of DuPage. That was the first time I got to learn about my Southeast Asian history. And specifically, the first time I learned about the Cambodian genocide. I was doing this piece on it. And I took this photo of the Opsar dancer. The good news was that the Opsar dancer was featured in the front page of the college newspaper. However... The article, the piece that I was working so hard on, never made it. And a few years later, I would get an internship. And I remembered the mentor that I was having to work with side by side. And he would make comments. And he would ask me, well, how does it feel to be the only Asian person here? It was very microaggressive, but it was also very intentional. And after I had left the internship, I was trying to get into these interviews with some of the big news media corporations. And every time I would walk in, it was a sea of white people. And one interviewer asked me, how do you think you would handle being the only Asian person? And to be honest with you, it sank my confidence. I realized that this is not where I could be. So when I think of the representation matters. I do think, yes, it is powerful to have Asian faces, Asian bodies in the work that we should be doing. However, it doesn't solve tokenism. It doesn't solve the inequities. It doesn't solve the power imbalance that white gatekeepers have while giving crumbs to Asian or other BIPOC folks. And so we're still seeing that. And I hope that we get to really see when there's representation, who's pulling the strings behind it, who's creating it, who's on the board, who is making the decisions. Because I look at my young 20-something-year-old self, and had I had a mentor who was Asian, maybe had I had other faces who were in leadership that were Asian, that might have been a different story. When we think about, I guess, the impact of storytelling from your experience and what you've done with the Bunmi Chronicles or Vietnamese Boat People, what is the process of just literally how a story improves someone's life? Yeah, sometimes I feel like an imposter, first of all, because I have no background in journalism or communications or storytelling. The people that I interview are mostly people who fled from Vietnam as a child or as an adult. And so 
my conversations with them have been like me sitting at someone's dinner table or having coffee with an uncle. I basically sit down and just want to hear their story the way that they want to tell it. And a lot of my interviews will last at least an hour and a half sometimes. I think my longest one was four hours. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Yes. And with my dad, it was six hours. But you know what? I'd never even talked to my dad that long. So I was like so fascinated. You know, these people hadn't talked about this past in so long. And it felt almost rude to interrupt them when they're sharing something so intimate. But I also have gotten a lot of people afterwards telling me how therapeutic it was. <laughs> oh my God. I know. And and I'm happy for that. I'm happy that even though I'm a stranger, I can provide that ear for them for something that has been so like hidden for so long because either nobody wanted to hear it or they didn't feel like anybody wanted to hear it. You know, it doesn't heal them. But I think it starts to open the door for dialogue. And we do get a lot of feedback from listeners that said, hey, you know, I got my dad to listen to your podcast on the way to the grocery store, and I couldn't believe it. Then he started telling me about his story. Mm. And those are the the kind of feedback that really, you know, makes our heart melt because that's exactly our mission. It's like we're trying to help people understand, connect, but then also to have that dialogue. I think the genesis and the whole process of storytelling comes from creating the space for it to be both safe but brave because oftentimes we keep thinking to ourselves, who wants to hear our stories? Why would I want to be vulnerable in front of strangers? Why would I want to put myself out there and maybe get gaslit? I've been in storytelling in the past where I've done it in white-dominated spaces, where there's like only just a few same BIPOC folks, it's not a very comfortable feeling for me because I'm telling stories about my family. I'm telling stories about my own trauma. But then the other storytellers would talk about crappy dating experiences. And I'm like thinking to myself, it doesn't feel equitable. It doesn't feel authentic to me. We deserve to be in spaces where we could tell stories to people that need to hear them and that they need to be accessible. And our young versions of ourselves who are here right now need to hear them. And that's something I think about. I think about people in rural communities who don't have access to being in diverse physical spaces. It's heartening for me to hear both of you walk through how you see the impact being made by your work, because I think it's a question we don't often ask in a really plain way. It's like, what do I think I'm doing? Mm. What I'm hearing from both of you is that you're leading this process of making more space for people who just wouldn't be there in the first place. Tracy, when you say people say that the experience is therapeutic, I've heard the exact same thing. You know, I've done hundreds of interviews and I always feel a little weird (laughs) when -hmm. someone stops halfway and says like, Mm -hmm. wait, are you giving me free therapy? And I'm like... (laughs) We have this often unchallenged assumption that we're here to serve, quote unquote, the market, and we're so used to everything being turned into a chance to exploit who we are. So to make people just recognize themselves, I feel just matters a lot. On that same note of therapeutic activity, like, what have you learned about how people heal? Mm. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think I'm going to try to take a stab at it. Well, healing is lifelong as I'm learning because 
we're constantly having to unlearn a lot of the toxic damage that we do to ourselves or that we've had to absorb for so many years, whether it's through intergenerational trauma, whether it's through assimilation, whether it's through other forms of colonial or state-sanctioned violence. I think the idea of healing is giving yourself pause, giving yourself time to rest, to honor yourself, and to also use your imagination to see the possibilities of what can thrive. You know, through the podcast, even when I have done my research, even when I've had discussions with my guests well beforehand, I often somehow bring up a story that I have never told before. When I interviewed Vuk Tran, when I read his book, Saigon, Saigon was a very powerful memoir for me. It really opened up challenges of my own childhood. And I talked about the time when my dad berated me during my eighth grade graduation. And being able to share that story on my own terms was part of my own healing. It gave me permission to say that it's okay to tell your story. It's, it's okay and it's a gift. But I think that people's healing is very nonlinear. It's an ongoing process that we have to do for ourselves and not be afraid to ask for it to happen. Gosh, it's so hard. I don't know if I'm going to be as articulate as Randy. <laughs> you know, I used to think that a big part of healing was to be able to talk about it, but I'm not so sure that that's the first step. I think what I've learned along the way is that even if someone doesn't talk about their own experience, they get some sort of sense of healing by listening to others that are going through something similar or by being a part of a community that is sharing, even if they're not the one vocally sharing. It's that human connection. It's feeling like you're not alone, I think, is a big part of healing from what I've learned. Some of the things that I've heard interviewees say is, oh, yeah, when I, you know, tell my children this or when I tell my husband this, you know, it's interesting and it's fascinating. But then when they see that my story was part of this huge evacuation of Dainang, all of a sudden it is like, wow, you were part of that? Wow, you lived through that? Like to know that their individual experience and story was a part of history their story has become a part of a collection of others that together makes what they've experienced more powerful and more meaningful. But along the way, I feel like my listeners probably heal more than my interviewees. And so I think that's why for me, what I've learned is it's not really about talking about your experience, but it's about hearing others talk about similar experiences. When I called you both up, I was thinking about that question of just like, how does a story actually create social impact? I made a documentary film that was about a 74-year-old grandfather who had moved from the South in the 50s to Oakland, California, uh, and wanted to open a restaurant, but couldn't because he was Black, and went to work for an oil company. And then after retiring, started this little diner inside a closet of a hair salon. And then eventually, as they were after 25 years shutting down the business, I made this film that was about the process of letting go of all that. But this movie will never be seen by almost anybody. I really like didn't know what I was doing. I don't have all the legal permissions. I can't like take the risk of trying to put it online even for free. You know, I think in many ways that would be considered a failure. <laughs> like, oh, great, you did this story and 
no one's going to see it. It's not going to make an impact. But I had an experience where we did take it to a few film festivals. One of the festivals flew him out to New York City. So at this point, he's like 76 years old. And uh, I realized he'd never been there before. Like, this is a guy who's lived through so many things, like so many stories to tell you. Never been to this part of the country until he was in his mid-70s. He had a great time. He was appreciated. And I was telling my friends who used to go to this uh, diner with me later, it's like, oh, yeah, Jody flew out. Did you know he'd never been to New York? My friend said, oh, wow. And she said, you did that. I, I had to learn to accept, like, oh, yeah, that was, <laughs> that was an impact. And I don't even care, like, if nobody ever sees the film. Because throughout this whole painful process, the idea that um, this man could really see his life reflected and then go to a place he literally had never been before uh, was enough for me. Mm -hmm. I think we get really caught up in the idea that a story will be impactful if it reaches a lot of people. And what I hear you saying is it's more about reaching the right people at the right time. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. I love your story because when people hear the word impact, they automatically assume quantity, mm -hmm. volume, and broadness, right? That's that's what people translate impact. But, you know, your story is an example where it's changing someone's lives or the way they think or how they feel about the, themselves. And that's impact. I mean, the name of my podcast is so niche. <laughs> It's like, you know, definitely having done this for a little over two years, we always toy with, you know, should we be broadening our topics? Should we be, you know, talking about what's happening today on, you know, the Asian American community? And and so like, yes, all of these things are very important issues. And if they could come up in this podcast and how we curate the stories, absolutely. But one of the things that I feel strongly about for our show is just staying true to the mission. It's okay to be small and it's okay to be niche. And I think what Tracy really summed up here is that we don't go in to get 10,000 streams or downloads or listens by the end of this month. We don't go in with that agenda. My professor said something to me that resonated with me a few months ago. And she said, people don't want to know the what in your question. They want to know the why in your work. And I think about why do I want to start a podcast? What am I trying to accomplish out of this? What do I want the outcome to potentially look like? I don't expect myself to make my podcast the ultimate impact maker or to revolutionize how our stories are being told. That's not the goal. The goal is to start the conversations that we need to have, to hear the conversations that we need to have. When we are at a time where the safety of Asian folks globally are at risk, it's also important to figure out who the helpers are, who could we turn to, how do we become the helpers in this? And I think that's what the impact of our guest stories can really do when we start to see the hope and possibilities of what can be achieved in a time that can feel so darkening. I mean, with the whole Stop Asian Hate campaign and just the racism that's happening all across the country being at the forefront of the media, I'm seeing advocacy and communities coming together to celebrate the month. 
And I've lived in my town in New Jersey for the past six years, and this is the first time I'm actually seeing other Asian families and parents coming together to celebrate the month in our town. And I think that's a great thing. You know, it's unfortunate that it takes this type of hate and media to make it happen, but you know, all things have to rise at some point. And so I feel like this year, it's just been a lot more prominent and it's exciting. And so how do you think we can make the best of this month? Continue to honor ourselves, continue to learn our history, to unlearn what we've been taught in our schools and to unlearn the trauma that we've had to inherit from our families and from the environment that we grew up in. Also investing and our Asian American communities who are doing important work, who are building our communities, our businesses, podcasts, content creators, authors, musicians. We have to support them, not just for this month, but as part of our practice and investing in them gives this leverage that we can have to create more art, to create more equity, to create more accessibility and how our society can be reimagined into. I mean, I see it as, you know, a month where we could take pride in our stories because you can't really share and amplify your story or your community's story unless you have confidence in what that is. And I, I don't mean like confidence to like get on a stage and share, but just internal confidence and pride in what it is. What I would love to see evolve out of this month is having it be more a part of the education curriculum. Like I said, I don't remember celebrating this at all growing up. But, you know, now that I have children in grade school, like it's become more evident for me that, wow, they're not learning this at all in school. Maybe there's an announcement that it's Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. Maybe there's like a book or two read, but there isn't the depth in really learning about the history. I just would love to see that change. I feel like it will. I feel like now is our time. It's happening in my town and I'm so proud of it. And, you know, I feel like it hopefully will only go up from here. Well, I really want to thank both of you for being with me today, and I really admire all your work, and not just your work, but all the care that you show and the perspective you have, just as people in this um, great nation on fire that we live in. So if people want to follow you, where can they keep up with what you do? People can follow me on Instagram at the Bunmi underscore Chronicles. Check out my Facebook page, go under the Bunmi Chronicles. Also, you can uh, listen to the Bummy Chronicles on any streaming services, Spotify, Anchor, Apple Podcasts, and whatnot. Check out our website at VietnameseBoatPeople.org. We're also on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Vietnamese Boat People is what you want to search for. And I would say definitely listen to us. Let us know what you think. But there are other ways for people to share their story if they don't want to share it on the podcast or through an oral history project. Uh, We do have a community blog and we publish uh, people's original writings, whether it's personal journals, you know, photography, poetry, artwork, whatever it is. And it's just another thing that we created so that there's space for individuals to, you know, share their journeys with others. 
Thanks again to Randy and Tracy for joining me today. You can find out more about them in our show notes. And I'm also sharing some work by Anjali Jetty, author of the new novel, The Parted Earth. She was all set to join us for this episode, but unfortunately had to take a rain check at the last second. Anjali, we missed you and hope to have you back soon. We'd love to hear what you think about these bonus episodes. So if you have any feedback, you can email team at selfevidentshow.com to let us know. Today's episode was produced by me, James Boo, with help from Harsha Nahada and Timothy Liu Lee. Our senior producer is Julia Shu. Our executive producer is Ken Ikeda. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and check back next week when our dear friend Alex Laughlin is hosting a conversation about what it really takes to create a more equitable workplace. Until then, you can follow us on social media at Self-Evident Show, where our team is going to be sharing some events and movies and music and books that we're pretty excited about. Self-Evident is a studio to be production. Our show is made with support from PRX and the Google Podcast Creator Program. And of course, from our listener community. If you stuck around to listen to this to the end, then I guess I can just say I hope that you have access to a therapist who is not a podcaster who himself needs a therapist. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll see you all next time.